Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following program contains language and themes which may not be suitable for everybody. I will say to you uh, that uh, there was no connection between my destruction of the summary sheets given to me by Mr. Sloan and the Watergate affair. Well, it was quite a queer coincidence, wasn't it? It's rather rather a suspicious uh, coincidence that uh, the records which showed uh, these matters were destroyed six days after the break-in at the Watergate. Mr. Chairman, the adjectives are yours. So? Uh, the adjectives that you're using, uh, queer, coincidence, and suspicious Well, don't you think it's rather suspicious? No, I don't. I think this Senate committee ought to act in fairness. Well, I have not uh, questioned the veracity of the witness. I've asked the witness some questions to find out what the truth is. I didn't use the word veracity. I, uh, I used the word harassment. The what? Harassment? Harassment. H-A-R-A-S-S-M-E-N-T. Well, I'm sorry that my distinguished friend from Florida does not approve of my method of uh, examining the witness. I'm an old country lawyer, and I don't know the fine uh, ways to do it. I just have to do it my way. I didn't say I approved or disapproved, Mr. Chairman. I just want to We have a cancer within the close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. What really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts is if you try to cover it up. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Welcome back to episode four of Watergate 50, the Crowpod Heart and Hand crossover here. And this week, David, we're going to talk about a man from way down in North Carolina, a simple country lawyer with a simple way of speaking, Mr. Sam Irvin. Yes, we are. We're going to talk about uh, what became known as the Irvin Inquiry. Uh, I think that's quite common. I think that when famous inquiries, uh, we call them the McCarthy hearings, for example. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that they do get named. That wasn't what it was 
properly titled. It was the Senate Senate investigation to investigate uh, details of the wa- the Watergate burglary. Yes, the, um, the Select Committee on Presidential Campaign committee. Activities. Now, yes. guys, a Select Committee, be it in the US or the UK or any other functioning government, shouldn't be that exciting. We get that, okay? But this one, this is the reason why they do still televise them. <laughs> because, you know, every TV company in the world lives for the hope that one day they will they will deliver this. We've spoken before, Shane, about how this plays out like a movie, like a television, like a drama, really, you know, yeah. like a 10-part drama. Uh, and this is a huge part of it. The, these hearings were to be televised. Uh, initially, the networks decided they would each take a day of it, but then because the viewing figures were so good, they all ended up cancelling their their soap operas for the whole yes, summer. Uh, days of Our Lives and shit like yeah, that was They gone. all got put on hiatus, yes. and instead it was this, and PBS would do uh, a roundup every just night. Full gavel to gavel and then show it again. Show it again. People yeah. again, huge, huge figures. So yeah. there is an argument that says that in terms of, you know, you get the one-off thing, like somebody's resignation speech, or we spoke about Checkers in episode one. This is probably, I would say, the most watched political... Uh, operation or political process ever. Yeah. No, it's, well, it's funny too, you know, saying about PBS there, because there's, there's, what is there, about 260 hours total of this mm-hmm. stuff. And a lot of it is incredibly fucking boring. I'm not going to yes, lie. It does. Like, you, you really have to want. You have to, to be me or him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you really got to want to sit there to, to pick out the, the 30 odd minutes that go, holy shit, that's awesome. Um, PBS, you know, because Nixon hated PBS. And it actually what was, I think, in 69, his first year in office, he tried to cut their budget, I mean, just squarely in half. Um, and uh, they end up issuing a statement during the, the Watergate hearings about uh, you know, Nixon finally being the best thing that ever happened to PBS, actually, because they were raising, oh, yeah. I think it was like a million and a half dollars in the first two or three weeks that the that the hearings were on. So, and there's yeah. also, a, and please go and look this up, it's on YouTube, folks, just search for Watergate Sesame Street. <laughs> and there you will find from 1973 the cookie monster <laughs> appearing in front of a panel who are trying, a select committee who are trying to find out what has happened to the cookies. And rather spectacularly, he just kept saying, Cookie Monster, not recall. <laughs> it's a wonderful bit of satire. But uh, yeah, I mean, this, this has it all cast of characters. Now, the first question for uh, the Senate. Uh, was, of course, who will lead this. And yeah. they picked Senator Sam Irvin. If the many allegations made to this day are true, then the burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate were, in effect, breaking into the home of every citizen of the United States. And if these allegations proved to be true, what they were seeking to steal was not the jewels, money, or other property of American citizens, but something much more valuable, their most precious heritage, the right to vote in a free election. Now, Sam Irvin was asked years later, why do you think they picked you? And he said two reasons. One, I was a lawyer. And and yeah. these are lawful procedures. So, the, the, you know, you, if you're deposed to speak at it, or you're subpoenaed to speak at it, you're under oath. You can mm. go to prison and someone will um, if you tell yeah. them things that aren't <laughs> true. So uh, he said, firstly, I was a lawyer. And secondly, uh, 
they knew that I had no further political ambitions, i.e. he wouldn't use this as a... Well, no, that's, yeah, it was a Mike Mansfield was the Senate Majority Leader. Yeah. He, he picked a, well, yeah, that, and he really didn't think Irvin was going to run for re-election in 74, and of course he didn't. And beyond that, when he was done in 1974, well, January of 75, his plan was just to go back down south and fish and uh, not have anything to do with politics ever again. <laughs> He wasn't going to run for president off the back of it or something like that. No, so no. Um, because of that, they felt he would be good. But uh, also, they, and this is a genuine thing. We spoke about this last week about how maybe standards have changed somewhat for, for the worst. That they knew he'd be fair. I mean, they did genuinely. But I mean, these are Democrats. It's Democrats who, uh, are, as has to be the case when it's the opposition, that have the majority. And they... They knew he would be fair, that he wasn't a Nixon hater. He wasn't a Nixon fan, particularly, but no. he had enormous respect for both the Constitution and the and the office of the presidency. Um, that's not to say that he was a wonderful guy all round. He's a very clever <laughs> man. Nixon himself on the tape says that's the thing about our southern gentlemen. They're a damn sight cleverer than most of the people in that building. Uh, so he had respect for them. But he he was a segregationist. He yeah. had voted against laws. He voted against civil rights laws. He voted against anti-lynching laws. Oh, he'd uh, written part of the Southern Manifesto, which was the the response to Brown v. Board of Education, the school yep. segregation case. So he um, had and fa- uh, famous I, uh, Jim Crow laws, which oh, are yeah. vile yep. things. Yeah. So not. A wonderful person all in, but again, probably or undoubtedly a product of his generation uh, and his time and place. But Shane, I mean, interestingly, and I think that this is there's one I'll, I'll kind of hand over to you. Yeah. It might be, again, slightly strange for uh, some of our UK listeners when we say that this was a Democrat who was probably more conservative, as the Southern yeah. Democrats were, than the Republican Party were mainly at the time. And also... They may be a little confused because the modern Democratic Party, we know, are, you know, the party of the, in inverted commas, left. America's never really had a proper left party. But um, the Democrats are the ones who are more liberal. And I think that's... But back then, they were this weird mix, weren't they, between the South, old-school conservatives, racists, <laughs> many, many, and in the North, you had these, you know, you had your trade unions, you had your women's rights activists, you had your black activists. It was a weird coalition. Yeah, it's well, it's a hangover from, you know, again, the the Civil Rights Act is passed under under Johnson um, in the late 60s. There, Irvin, I mean, been a senator since 1954. Right. And, and, you know, as David just said, I mean, the Southern Democratic bloc especially was your racist bloc. I mean, this was the George Wallace bloc of the Democratic Party. And so you still had these guys uh, that, that were hangovers of that era that were slowly being rolled out. Or just replaced in the South by Republicans who were becoming that more openly, um, well, just openly racist party that we're used to now. Uh, and, and it was one of the, uh, there were a lot of concerns from the left side of the party, even coming out of the House, um, about Irvin because of his pro segregation stance. And they thought that, you know, this is something that the media could be able to latch on to, that they could use it against us somehow uh, as these proceedings go on. Nixon, quite wisely, um, having run on his law and order thing and having Spiro Agnew sat next to him there the whole time to just race bait and dog whistle their way through uh, the you know two elections, 
thought, no, no one's really going to care about Sam Irvin being a racist if he does his job. And he was right. Uh, it, 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 you know, that I, I think Nixon even kind of thought for a little bit at the beginning that Irvin might be, I, I don't want to, I don't know, supportive or, um, uh, you know, he, he would feel for Dick and all this and try to try to play even maybe even more to the right toward Nixon than than uh, most people thought. But again, that was not the case either. So, uh, no, I mean, he ran this thing straight and even. And, you know, I mean, this is a committee set up. I mean, it's a unanimous vote, although, what was it, 23 abstained, I think. But 77 senators vote to set this thing up. And all 77, 77 of them say, zero, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, this is on February 7th. And then, you know, we get Sam Irvin, then the, the vice chair, Howard Baker, another uh, intriguing character in his own right. Yeah, uh, Howard Baker is a Republican senator. He would later go on to very high roller in the Republican Party, very important man, and ended mm-hmm. up actually being Ronald Reagan's um, uh, chief of chief of staff. And also, you know, coming into a kind of a broken Reagan administration and really fixing it. Very clever, Howard Baker, another lawyer and uh, a genuinely clever guy. Whether you like his politics or not, he he was a very good politician. Um, and by that, what I mean is in terms of the work he did, not he was a very good politician in, in terms of, you know, uh, glad handing and getting votes and whatnot. He was just, you know, if you gave him a job, he would go and do it. Um, Lowell Weicker was another Republican on the committee. And he was somebody, I think, who had a kind of eye on how he could come out of this. But uh, again, remember, the Republicans are pulling for Nixon. Nixon has told them face to face it's not true. I I didn't know. Yeah. Right, he has yeah. literally looked them in the eyes and lied to them. Yep. So they believe him. They they think that that they're going to run interference. Well, ba- but, Baker famously has this this you know off the books meeting with Nixon that, that that he lets John Dean sit on, much to his detriment, as we'll find yeah. out later. Uh, but yeah, where where Nixon? Look, I. Knew absolutely nothing. Nobody, as far as I know, nobody in the White House knew about this prior to. I mean, Nixon, Nixon's still holding the line because, again, I mean, th- this is in I don't know mid to late February, and as we were talking about last time, uh, James McCord doesn't send his letter to Sirica until about the middle of March, which mm-hmm. is just uh, right when they're really starting to do their investigative work. You know, they're they're still yeah. just setting up the committee when he does this, and of course, Sirica reads this letter out on, on March twenty third, which is the thing that blows the whole fucking game open yeah because the, the, then the yeah because i i think up until then i know me and you have disagreed about this in the past you know like with ford's ford's part in the patman committee that we talked about uh in a previous episode and, and as far as how the republicans handled themselves throughout this i think prior to the mccord letter being released and then well, it, subsequently, you know, when Dean turns state's witness effectively in early April, but even then, Baker and, and his uh, his protege there, Fred Thompson, uh, which uh, a wonderful TV character in his own right, um, really spend a lot of time in the weeks leading up to Dean's testimony, figuring out how to just absolutely butcher this guy. Because, oh well, yeah, but. Know, yeah. They, again, and I don't blame them. I'll be honest there, because you had this guy who was slick, and he is dislikable, John Dean. Oh, yeah. No, and, he and he is. I mean, he, and, he looks like a fucking prick. And, <laughs> and he and sounds he, like one, too. <laughs> and he is a liar. He's a clever liar. He mm-hmm. 
he uh, he's good at lies by omission and he's good at framing things in a certain way. So I can understand why I need to pick, and for the longest time it was one v the other. I can yeah. understand them going, I'll go with my guy. Now, yeah. on top of that, he was really popular. I mean, he yeah. is the leader. Um, oh, yeah. He, he just won a massive he, landslide. He just won a massive. So I totally understand why they went yeah. with it. But Shane mentioned something very important there, folks, which is the investigation uh, before it. Because they don't just, with any of these select committees, they, they don't just go, right, we'll all meet up on Monday or whatever, right? Yeah. And here. We'll throw a bunch of people in front of the fucking TV. <laughs> Let's go. And we'll see what happens. They go yeah. away and they actually try to, to find evidence uh you know, and, and build almost a case, if you like, before it. So both sides, the Republicans and the, the Democrats, the the Democrats are on the committee, apart from Irvin, obviously, you had uh, a guy called Daniel Inouye, who was a, a World War II veteran. He was from Hawaii. And rather, um, interestingly, it made for some awkward moments because Sam Irvin had been running committees since Jesus was around, right? I mean, he was, <laughs> and he was pretty set in his ways. And he would always say when they were taking a vote, can you raise your right hand? But Daniel, in a way, didn't have a right hand. He'd lost an arm in World War Two, yeah. uh, So he would say, can you raise your right hand? Oh, except you, Danny. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, so there was, there was that. Um, and they appoint, they both get to appoint a counsel, yep. uh, a lawyer. Now, the lead lawyer for the... The Democrats is a chap called Sam Dash, very clever guy, very well respected uh, lawyer in and around Washington at that time. And for the Republicans is Fred Thompson, who you will know, and so many of you did. Thank you. You were all, I, I love the reaction. People going, oh my God, that it, it is, yes, it's the DA from Law and Order. Uh, is the, the, and, you know, these guys are, I, I admire a lot of them because. I think that they did, they all went in with a political bias, and that's totally fine, and they all went in with yeah. their own agenda. But I think they did do their jobs. And Dash is a very clever guy. He has the right, if you like, to build the case. Although they're yeah. kind of working together, there is an acceptance. We're realistic. The Democrats are well, they, they for stuff. They both houses of Congress. Yeah. So, I mean, they're looking it, for it, stuff. It, 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 well, and, and that's also, looking for not yeah. for less stuff, shall we say. Right. And, and everybody thought, we should say this at the start, everybody thought... It will go into the White House. There's going to be a couple of underlings. Might get as high as maybe Ehrlichman. Yeah. You know, probably not. Uh, none of them, Republican, Democrat, none of them believed that it would go to Nixon. I think that's important to say that at the start. Well, I think, that, you know, with Dash, he, he comes back uh, a couple decades later, too, just like Fred Thompson, because he was he was the um, was he the ethics counsel, I want to say, to Kenneth Starr. In his uh, Clinton White House uh, uh, investigation, well, he fucking failed at that one, then. Didn't well, he? yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, so he he worked with Starr for three or four. Because remember, Star Starr's whole investigation into Clinton started out as like a property dealing thing, and then seven years later, it turned out he fucked a twenty one year old in the White House, right? Yeah. And, and, and so Dash, after about four or five years, he's like, "Nah, th this is fucking ridiculous. You're an idiot. This has nothing to do <laughs> with breaking the law. Like this, this is not what we started this for. This is not where it was supposed to go." Right, um, which it wasn't. And that's why no. Clinton ends up getting off, by the way, because yeah. people say, so this is a witch hunt, and they saw it for what it was. Yeah. There is a, a fantastic... <laughs> However, Watergate, not a witch hunt. <laughs> no, no. There is a, a fantastic uh, 
I, I don't know if you're aware of him over there, a guy called Armando Iarucci. He's a British okay. satirist. Yeah. All right, well, good. He, he did um, Veep over here for the. For yeah, the yeah of course. America. Yeah, he did Veep in the thick of it over here. And he did a show on. It's on YouTube, folks. It's called Clinton My Struggles with Dirt. Um, about the Clinton scandal. It's about 20 years old. It's hilarious. It lasts half an hour. And in it, he describes Kenneth Starr as uh, it's set 30 years in the future. And he says, Kenneth Starr is now retired to his own casino uh, where there are no walls or any any gambling. And he spends his days walking around his estate looking for people gambling so he can hit them with a stick. <laughs> I mean, he, he is the president of Baylor University, so it is about the same thing. Yeah, um, uh, that's the description. But right, let, let back back then to seventy three. So Sam Dash. Well, well, he, well, I think that you know, I want to say too, it, as you were saying, that Democrats can have a little bit more lean in this. That there, there's a chief counsel for the committee also named Carmine Bellino, um, who again, the Democrats have a little bit more, let's say, a, a, a opinion and who this is mm-hmm. going to be. Bellino, <laughs> because you could never get enough former Kennedy people working on cases with Dick Nixon. Bellino had worked with Bobby back in the late fifties. Uh, oh, the Jimmy Hoffa stuff, hadn't yes. he? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah well, that's once right. again, a former Kennedy House person comes back in. It will play a key part in how all this shakes out. Yeah, they are no yeah. fans of of Nixon, long term Nixon haters. But so the dash comes up with how they're going to do it, and there's disagreements about the order that they're going to call the witnesses. Um, Shane, you described it as he said we're going to do it as an iceberg down the way because it, more and more it will build up. And the first witness who's called is the office manager of the campaign to re-elect the president, who is questioned about, you know, so who ordered the stationery and, you know, what were the hours of the... the of, and and the, other, the other, you know, people in the committee are saying, this is boring, people won't watch it. But Dash was determined that we need to build it. But then Shane had mentioned the McCord letter comes up. Yeah. McCord wants to testify, wants his day uh, in front of the media. So yeah. they call him quite quickly, and it is explosive. Yeah, it, I mean, straight off. Well, again, because McCord is trying to get out of the way of this. And, and you know, by this point, it, I mean, it, it's, 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 what is it, May 17th is the, the first day, the opening day of the hearings, right? And everybody gets to give their opening statements, all this stuff. By now, Nixon had already promised to Irvin that all of his staff will come forward and talk to him. Mm. But then he fires Dean. <laughs> Haldeman resigns. Ehrlichman resigns. Uh, Klein, uh, um, what's his name? The, the attorney general. He resigns. Klein yeah, Klein Deanst resigns. Elliot Richardson's appointed. Alexander Haig replaces Haldeman. So now Nixon doesn't really have control over whether or not the staff is going to show up without a subpoena because, you know, they're not his staff anymore. And we should point out that when we say they resigned, um, yes. <laughs> they, they were resigned. Nixon goes on television, and we mentioned before he loves going on television um, to do an address to the people, in which we get the classic Nixon mix of uh, appearing to take some of the blame without actually taking the blame when he says, you know, I was so busy trying yeah. to make the world safe. And peaceful. Yes, I, I was trying to keep Israel together. Yeah, and, and I was so. I so just busy. came back from China. I mean, God damn it! Look at all, all the, the shit I was doing. Did, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's why this happened because I wasn't paying enough attention. So it's kind of taking the blame, but not taking the blame. And well, it's, it's uh, kind of how he blames, you know, John Mitchell later for for you know, had he been taking care of his house. 
mm-hmm. Watergate wouldn't have happened because Martha wouldn't have been able to yeah. come out and tell all these stories. You know, it's, it's always, it's never just, fuck, we shouldn't have done this. It's always, no, we should have done something different and you motherfuckers wouldn't have known. Yeah, basically. And that, that, that's his dying day. Um, but the, so then, as he said, he doesn't, he expects any of his ex staff to claim executive privilege. Now, executive yep. privilege is a doctrine which is well established in the US. I, it goes back to George Washington. I mean, the very first case of it being used is George Washington. George Washington so, saying, yeah, no, it's, it's like a military cover up of a, you a, a are not entitled, organization. Yeah, you are not <laughs> entitled to see any of my papers or uh, talk to any of my a staff or, yep. yeah, without my permission. And I don't give you permission because I need to keep things secret within the office to do the running of it. It's a well-established doctrine. Well, it's, it's um, all about the separation of the three branches of our government. You know, the the you executive know. branch is supposed to be able to function within its own capacity. The, the, the Congress has its own methods, you know, and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, absolutely. So, they get McCordon, yeah. who tells them what he's done. Now, he actually, there's a brilliant bit, Shane, where he, he, they give him a phone and they say, can you show us how this is how you bug a phone. And he literally <laughs> there at the desk. And yeah. th- this room's become iconic for Watergate junkies like me and Shane. The This room um, is, it, it's so wonderful. I mean, it's so 70s, obviously. Oh, but yeah. even then, it looked a bit dilapidated. Like so a, a journalist who did a daily report from it said, it was kind of like being in the, the grand ballroom of an old hotel, which... Hollywood stars used to go to, but they don't anymore. <laughs> but it still is some of that allure. Um, and also, well, it's, it's it's just cramped. I mean, if you go watch the videos of this, it is fucking cramped and it's sweaty. Uh, there's not there's like no air conditioning in there. It's Washington D.C. during the fucking summer, which is scaldingly hot. It never uh, gets it, cleaned either because no, of no. security reasons. He didn't yep. want, you know, so, you so want it's people messy. in there to play some bugs and shit. <laughs> yeah, so it's messy and it's, uh, but it looks, you know, just amazing. And there's, well, I love, I love Dick Cavett uses it for one of his shows one night, you know, like goes in go, and records one of his talk shows. From, oh, look at oh. it. There's a, a brilliant bit where he's, he's sitting in the chair and he says, I would just like to state, he's sitting in the witness chair and he says, <laughs> I would just like to state that I have no, I had no prior knowledge of the Watergate bar. And he's actually, interview it's a wonderful piece of television he's actually interviewing the members of the committee yep. he's sitting in the witness chair they're sitting where they would sit normally which is is a brilliant visual and uh, they're they're very relaxed you know that and he comes away with the the great line he says uh senators i've got to tell you that sitting here even though i've not been involved i feel guilty and howard <laughs> baker says you might be the first one <laughs> <laughs> and and people laugh because there's an audience and so McCord sits and he tells them what happened and he yep. tells them that there was political pressure placed on him um he was offered a job it's it's it's, it's a lot of what the letter was yeah know, he, he, he says he was offered a job by a go-between from john dean who's the counsel to the president um he was offered a job at rehabilitation if he just shut up and did his yep. time um that once he came out his family would be looked after uh this was done through an intermediary uh jack caulfield the the pi that we'd mentioned no. so there's the accusation made he, you know and he's very he says He's respectful. He says, look, um, I've worked for the CIA. I've, I've spent my life dedicated to the service of my country. I thought I was doing something for national security for the president. Looking back, I realize it was an error. And 
it's kind of hard. That's a convincing thing to say. You know, it's kind of hard to have someone sitting there and, and the, you know, they, they go quite hard on him in places, I think, Shane, where they'll give it, you know, you knew this was illegal and you knew this was wrong. And he's like, yeah, I did. I, I admit that and I regret it. But equally, you're given some jobs by the president, by the government that need to be done in time of strife and, and struggle. And I think that the perception is certainly when you read the biographies of the the autobiographies, especially of the people involved in the Watergate, um, Jill Volner Banks, who is uh, one of the people on the Archibald Cox, she said she felt so sorry for McCord and the Cubans because they did yeah. believe that. They genuinely did think that that's what they've been told. You know, this yep. is an order from the president for you yep. to go and do. So that there is a bit of sympathy there for them. They also bring on Tony Alasowicz, who was one of the yes. bag men. He was, <laughs> and he is such a... A cartoon. I mean, he well, is. I mean, he's, he's a uh, former uh, NYPD cop, and just. I mean, it's. it's oh, he's fucking, so. It's, he's straight it's out so of a detective top. show <laughs> yeah. to the point where Howard Baker says, "Who dreamed you up?" Because <laughs> he is straight from central casting, yeah. and he's you know he's well, making it, it, jokes it, and. It, yeah, well, and, and importantly, he's got notes, contemporaneous notes that that confirm what McCord had said because he, he'd written. He didn't have like the original ones where he put down everything, you know, that that he had during this meeting where he said that, what was it, the McCord quote, a year is a long time. No one knows how a judge will go. Your family will be provided for rehabilitation and job opportunities will be provided for. So it's confirming exactly what McCord's been saying to Sirica, you know, in his letter Mm. there and what he's told him. So now this is the thing is the snowball effect. And this was the whole point of Dash building this thing from the bottom up um, is, you know, you, you lay all these little bricks, all these little pieces at the bottom. By the time you get to the likes of, you know, Haldeman and Ehrlichman, these guys toward the end, that hopefully their, their plan was to catch them in the ringer. But mm. before we even get there, there's a hell of a lot more that comes Yeah, the, the way, because Elasovitz can actually, he has given, he has taken the money from yep. Morris Stans at the and, campaign and, and, for re-election and Herb Kalmbach, yep. Richard Nixon's personal lawyer, he has taken this money and distributed it to the burglars and their families. There is your direct link. That goes directly into the heart and he is sitting there. Now, at the moment, remember, folks, these are all just accusations, okay? That, that There's no proof yet. Nope. These are just testimonies of it. But it begins to ramp up a little with the announcement that John Dean is going to testify. Now, Dean... This is really interesting. We mentioned there, the president realises he's going to have to do something. Uh, And his first plan is to try to get Mitchell to take the blame for it. And Mitchell, rather famously, in a meeting with Ehrlichman, puffs on his pipe. Ehrlichman says, John, the president feels you need to take responsibility for this. And John takes his pipe out and says, do you know I don't see that happening? (laughs) <laughs> and puts the pipe back in. Yep. So he's not going to do it, and Nixon isn't going to push him to do it. He did have a lot of respect for, for Mitchell, and he feels sorry for him because of the problems with Martha. Yep. So then they, they came up, Ehrlichman and Haldeman and him come up with this perfect wheeze that what they'll do is they'll fit up Dean for it. Now, Dean is yep. guilty of, the, of being involved in the cover-up. Oh, but, but what they, they are going to do is they're going to get him to write a report. Yeah. The year earlier, the president had mentioned on air, um, he'd said, John Dean, President's Council, has done an investigation into this and found that no members of the the White House team 
are involved. And Dean was watching this and he said, that's interesting. I didn't know I had done an investigation. Yep. I didn't know. So, well, well, and here too, there, there's a, so Pat Gray, who we talked about that, that was the acting FBI director back, back in late February. Now they're, they're trying to, Nixon wants to rush Gray into the full directorship, right? Again, Hoover's dead. He wants to get Gray in as the director. And Ehrlichman told him, you can't, it, don't do this. You got to leave mm-hmm. Gray just hanging out there. Twisting in the, slowly in, this, in the wind. Yeah, slowly in that, the wind. That was the phrase. But the second, Gray, Gray gets into his confirmation hearings and immediately chucks Dean under the bus, which sets the wheels in motion for, for all this shit with John Dean. Because, yeah, you know, you got Haldeman and Ehrlichman conspiring against him. He goes into that meeting with with uh with nixon on the, in late may or the middle of may with the, the cancer on the white house and then comes back the next day for another sit down with nixon and this is the one where he realizes they're about to absolutely fuck me they're gonna railroad me and end my damn life and my career i'm gonna be the only one going to jail that <clears throat> shit ain't gonna happen yeah the president um is suspiciously asking questions in a way that he doesn't normally that tend to exonerate him so he'll be and he's walking folks to specific areas of the room and leaning in these awkward positions and saying so john you would agree that's the first i knew anything about it when you told me on this day and dean's going why is he leaning into that plant pot um and it's because he's trying to get this on tape he's trying to get uh he tells dean why don't you go away to Camp David for the, the weekend and write up this report? And Dean goes, oh, that's a great idea. And as he said, as Shane said, he gets in and he's like, hang on. What they want me to do is write down all the stuff I did. Yep. And then they're going to go out and say, look, it was him. We didn't know anything about this, right? Yeah. So he goes to the prosecutors. Uh, Straight to, to the Dash. U.S. Attorney's Office, right? Away. Uh, <laughs> And they won't give him immunity. But as his lawyer, a guy called Charles Schaefer, says, uh, you don't have the only show in town. And by that, what he means is the Irving Committee, who do have the power to grant something called use immunity. Now, what that means is, folks, anything that he discloses, he cannot be prosecuted for. Right. So the, the feeling with the Archibald Cox and special investigation that we'll get to next week is that no, he's a criminal, he should go to jail, right? Yeah. Um, and I tend to agree with him, by the way. I think Dean was very clever, but he... Well, it, it, I, you know, like you're saying there, too, it, it really... Because Cox is sworn in after this has already started. Before Dean's testimony, but after testimony has already begun. And it immediately changes the dynamic of Dean's... Of how they're going to go about this and, and the advice from his lawyer. And it really, you know, him and Butterfield and all the ones that we're going to get to here... Mm. How they come about giving advice is completely altered by, you know, Elliot Richardson being appointed to the full-time post at AG, uh, the shit with Gray, and Richardson turning around and appointing Cox while the committee hearing is already going on. Like, mm. it, 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 it changes everything right in midstream. Right in midstream. Uh, this is so reactive. Gore Vidal said it wonderfully. He said, I love this. I wouldn't live at any other time in history. I am like a junkie. I get up in the morning and I buy my Washington Post and I read the latest. Then I watch the the hearings. I can't live without it because there was something happening every day. So Dean goes, he gets his immunity. And Dean does have, he's famous for this, a prodigious memory. He has got, um, what is it they call it? An eidetic 
Yeah, yeah, I know the, yeah he, he took he, no notes, but he fucking remembered everything. He's, he's one of these person, and and to be fair to him, see when you compare the tapes to what he had written without access to tapes, he he does. He is yeah. pretty much almost word for word what he said. So he compiles a 242-page report. And this is what I mean about him being a bit of a wee shite, right? John Dean was a bit of a boy, right? He had the, the Dolly Bird model wife. He had the sports car Porsche with the top down. He would drive into the White House. He wore <laughs> Gucci loafers. He had contact lenses, uh, yeah. the, 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 the trendiest clothes, the Hermes tie, he turns up to to give his uh, testimony, and he looks like a fucking geography teacher. He <laughs> he's got these little glasses on. The no more of the contact. Yeah, that, that Sam Dash told us to put these glasses on. Put son. these glasses on, and he's got his hair combed like a page boy. He he's wearing a boring suit. The his wife is sat behind him, but she's not got on, you know, the makeup and the wild clothes that she normally wears. She's looking very prim and proper. They look like two God fearing Christian you know, <laughs> that the butter wouldn't melt people. And for two days he sits and he reads his testimony. Well, four, 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 yeah, two days, is, yes, yeah. Two days just reading his statement yeah, and then two yeah. days being questioned. And yeah. Shane, to call this explosive would be an understatement. Yeah, it's... Um... Well, let's play some of it. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Here you go. As the president discussed the, the present status of the situation, I told him that all I'd been able to do was to contain the case and assist in keeping it out of the White House. I also told him that there was a long way to go before this matter would end, and that certainly, I certainly could make no assurances that the day would not come when this matter would not start to unravel. What I had hoped to do in this conversation was to have the president tell me we had to end the matter now. Accordingly, I gave considerable thought to how I would present this situation to the president and try to make as dramatic a presentation as I could to tell him how serious I thought the situation was that the cover-up continue. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and that if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. So yeah, I mean, oh God. I, so much. You guys can, you, you can probably tell by now me and David don't really like John Dean that much. No, <laughs> but for it, so much of it, for, if if he sounded anything different than he does, I think I think I would have a little bit more time for him. But he he's it's been fifty years of me hearing this cunt's voice, and it still I mean it sounds exactly the same. And exactly I have seen the him. Same. I have seen him give the same interviews on about twenty Watergate documents. Now that probably means i watch too many of them i'll grant yeah, you but yeah. he his story you would think that this saint this john dean fellow who is the world's nicest man you know and, and he decided just one day i'm going to stop distributing arms to the poor and instead i'm going to go <laughs> and work at the white house and then he gets there and he's appalled by everything that's going on and he's appalled by this cover-up which he orchestrates and <laughs> manages right he doesn't orchestrate that came from above but he manages it on a day-to-day -day basis uh and then he claims that eventually he'd had enough and he has to speak out um no he spoke out because understandably but they're gonna fit him up for it 
and they're going to leave him taking the sole blame and he ain't going to jail as far as he's concerned. So he goes and he tells he tells him about all of it. He tells him about the cover-up. He tells him about yeah. the money being spent. He tells him about the, uh, the the conversations. He tells him about the cancer on the presidency. Well, and, I mean, he details about 30 to 35 <laughs> conversations he's had with Nixon. I mean, and, and in very, very explicit, very good detail. It's, it's insane. He, Blows Nixon's defense that he didn't know out of the water. Yep. But, again, it's still only one man's word against the president. And most it people is. in America, according to opinion polls, 70% don't believe him. They, no. well, they believe the president. A, Dick Cavett opens a show that night. Why should I believe what John Dean said? It's understandable because, and he is quite a slippery character. Oh, now. Yeah. But there, there, there's one thing here, you know, we're going to take a little break, but there's one thing he says during this testimony that becomes massively critically important. And it's something that he didn't say to investigators prior to being asked about it. Something that he figured out in March, which is that he was probably being taped in the White House as he was talking to the president all these times. And this, this little, it's almost an afterthought in his testimony and his questioning. He doesn't make a big deal about it. But right away, everybody working in both sides of the council realized we've got a fucking problem here that we did not anticipate. So when we come back, we're going to talk about all that. So, Famous question. One of the phrases that comes out of Watergate that is true. You know, we mentioned about follow the money not being a you know nobody ever said that. But one of the things that comes out of Watergate is, of course, Howard Baker's question: What did the president know, and when did he know it? Now that sounds like it's quite an aggressive question about. I want to know what the president did. Yep. But what it actually is, because he's running interference for the White House, what it actually is is, I will exonerate the president here, yep. because when you at first you hear that question, what did the president know and when did he know it? That there's almost an assumption of he did know, but what he's actually wanting is deemed to clear the president and say, oh, he knew about it on this date, and then since then he fired me and he fired other people who he thought were involved in it. Which I, I kind of I, I always put Baker's line right in there with the uh, the I'm not a crook that is horribly misinterpreted because people just don't understand the context of it. You know, like ba- Baker said this like 75 fucking times during this committee, yeah. it, it, and it, it's because it was like a, a, I don't know a catchphrase or something like that for him. He has everybody all the time because, like David said, he's he's not trying to figure out necessarily what you know or how it can help you, but how it can save Nixon. Famously, like the I'm not a crook thing doesn't have to do with Watergate. It has to do with Nixon's tax evasion. Like, Which so, he was guilty of. And oh, yeah, folks. Yeah, he, yeah. He, was, he was hugely guilty of tax evasion, as had Johnson been. And of course, as we, we've learned throughout this show, Richard Nixon always feels that if someone else did it, he's allowed to do it. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, we're going to come to that actually in a minute, That uh, how that peaked down through the White House. So, John uh, Shane mentioned John Dean just casually drops in. Oh, the president was taking up these weird positions uh, in his office and, you know, weird contorted things. And it made me wonder if perhaps 
we were being recorded. Yeah, and so the, what? The, there's a whole shift in how um, the, well the, the the special counsel goes about um, building, you know, testimony in case here. And, and because, well, Fred Fred Buzzard, he was a minority special counsel. He talks with Dean and the build up to his thing, and he gives this whole report to Fred Thompson, right? And some of this will start to sound like the dirty trick thing that that we've come to know from this White House, from from Mitchell and Ehrlichman and Haldeman. But he gives this report to Fred Thompson, but with it, you know, they're still trying to discredit John Dean to save the president. Again, what did the president know, and you know, when did he know it? Well, here's the layout of what he knew supposedly. And there's a there's an investigator by the name of Scott Armstrong, majority, you know, he's, he's with Democrats. He sees a copy of this report because an aide comes over and tells him, hey, there's like eight pages laying on this guy's desk over here that, you know, I can't give you. But if you go look at it, mm-hmm. you, you can you can figure this thing out. And, and it's because it's too precise to be. Yes, it, it can. It, it's it's it's, it's Thompson. It's Thompson's memo and, you know, dictated memo and the questions that he wants Dean to be asked, followed by what looked like verbatim quotes from Nixon and Dean and Haldeman and other people. Yes, within the White the, House had given, we, we should probably clear that up. The White House had given the Republican council questions they wanted asked, but they'd also given verbatim transcripts, which yep. of course could only have come from if you had a copy of the conversation. It wasn't vague things of like uh, the president recalls him saying, it was literally the conversation, you yep. know, president says, Dean says, president says. So that's kicking about. We'll come back to that because the big hitters then get called. Um, first up is John Mitchell. Now, John Mitchell is a a sanguine guy, I think, Shane. Um, and I do genuinely think one of the victims in here um, for various reasons, but equally not a very pleasant character, so it's hard to have too well, much sympathy. What, what was it? His, his wife, you know, she felt sympathy for him after because martha and john split up obviously and then you know martha of course sadly passes away but what was her oh she called nixon a, a um oh, shit a monopoly of nothing or, so, or something to that fact yeah, and that, she mitchell, some and that mitchell was was able to be swayed under the power of this man <laughs> of the, you know because uh, obviously she thought john was this amazingly strong and brilliant mind and he was he but was, he was yeah. also a nixon man just and like he was law and order. And just like Ehrlichman. Yeah, and he was law and order, and he was like, you do. They were all means justify. Oh, sorry, the end justifies the means. Yep. That that's that's the biggest thing you can say about them all. And Mitchell was described by one of the Democrats on the committee, folks. Right, so not a friendly. But said to, to us, he was like an old soldier who was just going to do everything he could to guard his commanding officer, and it didn't matter if he was going to get in more trouble. He would not. So they ask him, do you recall this? No. Okay. Um, do you recall this? No. What about this? No. And he <laughs> he sits, and, and a term that we all use now comes out, uh, stonewall, because yeah. that, that it comes from John Mitchell. When you stonewall somebody, you you basically just put up, that's it what his aides used to joke about him. Uh, and later on that night, they find out uh, because one of the one of the reporters goes, oh, Stonewall, Stonewalled you. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about, Stonewalls? And it was, he just couldn't recall. He wouldn't say anything. And he kept coming back to the same phrase. 
I might have done that because the most important thing was Richard Nixon being elected. Yeah. And he says this. He actually says this. And he says, I would have done anything yeah. for to make that happen. And he keeps coming back. There is, though, the fabulous bit, Shane, where Sam Dash says to I'll you take this, when Sam Dash asks him the... The question about in your office and you'll have heard oh no no, no no yeah no low, low, i dig of it it was low weicker low, low weicker is questioning him because yeah, they're, they're going out about the 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 campaign and dirty tricks and all this kind of stuff and he wants he starts bringing so this is a this is another uh gordon liddy uh fantasy <laughs> land bullshit here and why weicker starts in uh, well, well we'll just go ahead and listen to it here you go that uh, plan complete with visual aids, uh, included elaborate charts of electronic surveillance and breaking and entering and prostitution and kidnapping. Now, you've indicated that in hindsight, you probably should have thrown him out of the office. Out of the maybe, window, I think. Maybe even I out of the window, in that. hindsight. And do you mean to tell me that you sat there through that meeting? And in fact, actually had the same man come back into your office for a second meeting without in any way uh, alerting appropriate authorities, in this particular case, uh, the President of the United States? That is exactly what happened, Senator. It's a grievous error. So yeah, it was a grievous error to uh, listen to G. Gordon Liddy's insane plans about prostitution and kidnapping and I should have thrown him out the window, but then I just let him back in my office again the next day to have the same fucking unhinged conversations about this shit. Yes, um, but he, he it's such a great moment where Sam Dash says to him, shouldn't you have you know, thrown him out of your office? And Mitchell says, well, looking back, not only should I have thrown him out of throwing him out of my office, I should have thrown him out the window, and the audience laughed, but then Dash comes away with a crack and he says, yes, but seeing you did neither. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, but he won't give them anything. Next up no. is next up is Ehrlichman. Yes. Now, we've we've spoken about Ehrlichman before. He's sharp, he's clever, yeah. he's a lawyer. Oh, you, you can just see it. I mean, just it, it is, he's just, angry. Just the way he looks. Yes, he I mean, looks yeah. angry. And he turns yes. up there and he's going to fucking argue everything. I'll give you yep. an example of this. At one point, committee member says to him, so you bugged this conversation? He said, no, sir, I did not. He said, well, you recorded this conversation? He said, yes, I did do that. I didn't bug it. And of course, the, the guy's, well, you, you just said. And he said, no, you said, did I bug this conversation? I did not. There were no bugs involved. It was a recorder on my phone. Um, and that's the kind of mood he's in. He's going <laughs> to argue everything. So they're having this, him and the simple country checking um, yeah. are having the, uh, that's a future armor reference, folks, for those who, <laughs> uh, but the simple, they're having this debate on the Constitution. Basically, yeah. Irvin says, he said, uh, you can't claim this was national security, the Ellsberg break-in. And he said... Yeah, so oh, it, what, what was it? yeah the, the, the opinion of, of Ellsberg psychiatrist, he was asking about his uh, emotional yeah. or psychological state. And Ehrlichman, how do you know that, Mr. Chairman? And Irvin... <laughs> Irvin <laughs> says, because I speak English, it's my mother tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and that leads, of course, to the 
the, the famous phrase where uh, he says, you know, I'm, I'm nothing but a simple country lawyer. He says that all the time, folks. Right? Oh, I mean, yeah. he, has... he he says that and Baker says his line. It's and like Baker... you, you, yeah. if you cut those out of the transcripts of the, of the Watergate committee, you could, like, <laughs> cut it, you could I mean, you'd, it'd be half slice it in half. <laughs> It's ridiculous. You're, you're right. He said, but at one point he says, "Yeah, I'm a bit a simple country lawyer." And uh, Baker cuts in and says, uh, "If the he says uh, the the chairman is is fond of telling you all, he's just a simple country lawyer. What he fails to mention is that he graduated first in his class at Harvard Law School." <laughs> and, and to be fair, they all have a good laugh, but uh, Irvin comes back in and he says... Uh, he says if, I, if, uh, if I can speak a few words in my defense. In, in my defense. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it was that it was that sense of decency that he was projecting up against... Here's, here's Ehrlichman, right? Just, and just a consummate just asshole. Ian, I mean. and, a, and there's a great moment after it where a journalist walks up to... Once he finishes his very angry testimony... Doesn't admit to anything. Didn't know anything was going on, apparently. And he does uh, perjure himself. I <laughs> does perjure himself. Up, up walks a reporter to Sam Dash, and he said, "Whoa, he was tough, wasn't he? You just couldn't break him." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah." Um, but tell me, do you think he was involved after hearing him? And he's like, "Oh, yeah." He said, "Well, the testimony worked, then, didn't it?" Yeah, that's it. That's well, it. this. You know, I mean, Ehrlichman's. Out of the back of this, up until this point, Ehrlichman probably hasn't done anything that anybody could have charged him with because he was very careful. Mm. Well, I mean, he was one, the brightest, he, I think. He was the brightest he, yeah, of the well, underlings. It, he knew about the saving system. He was one of the very few. So there's very rarely... No, he, he didn't. Oh, no, Hal- Haldeman did. Haldeman, Haldeman did, did. Yeah. Never mind. Well, anyway, well, I'm sure Ehrlichman had a, a, a <laughs> hinting. But anyway, he was always very careful about what he said in any meetings outside of just the presence of Nixon alone. Yeah, and he's a lawyer. I, yes, well, I, I always that... love to. I, one of my favorite Ehrlichman things is that Nixon could never spell his name. Yes, ever, ever. Well, this, uh, this is I... one of his be- maybe his best friend out of all these people, excepting Mitchell. I don't know, but I mean, yeah, he's Mitchell, known man. this guy for for years now, years going back to well, his earliest campaigns. Has known John Ehrlichman for his entire political career. Never learned how to spell his name. Years later, he sends Ehrlichman a copy of his uh, autobiography and it's autographed to him. And uh, Haldeman says to him, well, at least you know it was it was him who signed it. And he's like, how? He says, because he still can't spell your name right. And true to state. <laughs> but Haldeman said about Nixon, all the years they were together, he says, he doesn't know how many children I have. He's never yeah. asked. He doesn't yeah. care. Um, but interestingly, when we listen to these tapes, and we'll get more into them next week, there are a lot of what I would describe as elliptical conversations, people talking round each other, people yeah. people sort of, because what you have in these rooms most of the time are four lawyers, yeah, and they don't speak in a straightforward way. They speak no. in guarded, clipped tones. But what that meant is when they needed to have a big discussion about, right, what are we actually going to do here? Or... Really, where are we in this cover-up? Nobody would. They're also guarded, and they're also yep. suspicious of each other. Um, well, well, then, th- this is again. This is how you end up with a Watergate break-in in the first place, because no one will just come out and say exactly what the fuck they want the other yes. person to do. And so you get psychos like G. Gordon Liddy just like, well, fuck it, I'm going to break into the Democratic National Committee. Then. 
Why not? You know, I, I'll take a break from lighting my skin on fire to prove how tough I am and go and break I'm, into a building. I'm over here cleaning off my my fucking Rugers, and uh, you know yeah. I'm just bored. We should we should point out. You might be wondering if Liddy testified. No, he didn't. Liddy nope. was loving life in prison. Genuinely, he no, saw no, yeah, it. he turned himself in and just went, all right. I'm saw going to jail. Ehrlichman, you know, again, Ehrlichman's convicted of perjuring himself during his testimony here. And unlike Mitchell and Bob Haldeman, who we're about to get to here, he just turns himself in because yeah. he really, you know, Mitchell and Haldeman try to go through appeals and stay out and Ehrlichman just goes, nah, fuck it. Yeah. Like, Ehrlich- I, I'm going to end up in jail. Let me yeah. go to jail now. Ehrlichman and Colson. Uh, Magruder, uh, they did. They just did their time, and funnily yep. enough, actually, Colson and Magruder found God in prison. Uh, I don't mean God was in prison, but they, <laughs> uh, of all the places he might be, I don't think in a US penitentiary. Although it was a, a minimum security one, and it was quite pleasant by all accounts. But um, in fact, both Colson and Magruder became ministers. Yeah. Afterwards, became Presbyterian yeah. ministers. So at least they're on the right side. Hey, you know, no, nothing says modern Republicans like shifting to uh, God. <laughs> Of course, I mean, that, through, yeah, yeah and know. it's totally believable that it happens yes. to you. Um, yep. but, but, but like St. Paul on the road to Damascus, my friend, right? They're, <laughs> they're walking along in prison one day and then, Jesus Christ, uh, the light appeals, quite literally. So, um, but yeah, uh, Ehrlichman and Holderman have the same lawyer. Yep. And they see the reaction to Ehrlichman's testimony yep. and he turns to... Hold him in the lawyer and says, you, you can't do that. Don't You need to be Mr. Approachable, Mr. Yeah. Nice and Kind. Now, Sam Dash has said already that they've had uh, Ehrlichman and, and Holderman in for questioning. And he said, we were expecting, you know, fire-breathing dragons based on yeah. their reputation. And he said, and Holderman could He said, Ehrlichman was fine. He was obviously more aggressive on the stand. But he said, Holderman couldn't have been nicer. He was polite. Um, he was engaged. Well, he, he tried to clarify questions. He, he, just, he, he, you know, yep, yeah. and he wanted to help, except he was lying through his teeth. Oh yeah, constantly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, but he was present. So he turns up. He's growing his hair out a little bit. Another yep. image thing. He doesn't have the severe crooker, and he he sits and he is helpful and he is kind. And he says a version of "I don't remember," "I don't recall." 269 times Yeah, he makes Nicholas Sturgeon days. look like a, a well-versed uh, <laughs> Yeah, <witness>. I mean, <laughs> he he cannot recall anything. No. Now, what the, the the problem he has is his reputation, and this is the same with Ehrlichman, yeah. their reputations are that they were so efficient, so on top of everything, and they are now asking the US to believe that we all this was shit. going on and they didn't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. Right. So they're having to and nobody believes it. But Shane mentioned there Ehrlichman perjures himself by claiming not to know. Well, my goodness, does uh Holden <laughs> do himself a doozy. The president had permitted him to listen to the cancer on the presidency tape. He's yeah. the only person, apart from Nixon, who has heard this tape. Okay. So he sits there, this is after Dean's testimony, remember, and that's important where it has come out. And he says in his statement, I listened to the tape, and the president, John Dean, says, you know, you would need a million dollars. The president says, I know where it could be gotten, but it would be wrong. Right? <laughs> Those five words will send him to jail, folks. Yeah. Because it, it clearly, now, it totally changes the meaning, because what Nixon actually says is, I know where you could get it. I know where it could be gotten. 
He doesn't then say, but it would be wrong, which exonerates him. He says, but the key question is, who would handle it? Yeah. That is not, but it would be wrong. No, no. And that, when the tape comes out, and as Shane (laughs) says, he does the appeals, he does, but it's banged. They have him on fucking television telling this lie. The the, the problem for both of them, for both Ehrlichman and Haldeman, when they resigned, you know, Nixon had told him, look, I'll, I'll pardon you, right? Yeah. Knowing fully well, he was not going to pardon them. Correct. And it, it really, it's probably the, <laughs> it's the only thing that you've ever heard a sour word come out of Haldeman or Ehrlichman's mouth. I think, what, what was it Ehrlichman said? And it was in seven, it was after he got out of jail. He said, uh, I abdicated my moral judgments and, and turned them over to somebody else, mm-hmm. you know? And er- Ehrlichman post it is actually quite a likable guy because he, well, he, he grows a beard. He, he, he ends up, he looks like a red from uh, that 70s show. Yeah. He ends up looking like a kindly old guy and yeah. he, he does his time and he comes out and he admits, yeah, we did this. And you know, I've had time to think about it. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't overdo it like Dean, right? First of all, right. he holds his hands up and says, I did all this. Secondly, yeah. he says, yeah, it was wrong. I've had time yep. to reflect on it. But equally, you know, I'm still proud of some of the work we did. And, yeah. you know, he's still a conservative. And he just, he just, he's just a human being rather yeah. than well, being well, who's it, an image. Well, and he also doesn't show up every single fucking forum or documentary or every yeah. single goddamn. No. I mean, like, he, he, he ends up on Letterman uh, yeah. in the, what, like 82 or something, which is, it's yeah. a really good. 12 watch minutes. It, yeah. I mean, go go watch John Ehrlichman on David Letterman's show. He um he has good insight, and he's yeah. he, for instance, he's asked about you know Nixon being such an odd guy, and he says, well, you know, you look at Muskie, and he says, I know people say you did the dirty tricks on him. He said, and we did. He goes, but the reason that he dropped out of the campaign wasn't any of our dirty tricks. It was the fact he got upset at the dirty tricks and cried yeah. on television, and the American public said. You can't have a man who cries because yeah. his wife's been attacked, he says, which is a normal human emotion that we would all feel. He goes, so that means that our process weeds out normal people <laughs> and it means you're <laughs> left with people like Richard Nixon. And, yeah. and he was spot on, but they're now both, they've now both told lies, right? Yeah. Mitchell hasn't told any lies, but he, nobody believes him because he's no. just sat and said, no, I can't remember. Um, but they too have actually told lies, and yeah. as soon as the tapes come out, they are absolutely destroyed. Well, and the reason that the tapes do come out, going back, Bob Haldeman knew about the taping system because it was his deputy, Alexander Butterfield, who had installed it. And uh, Alexander Butterfield, this 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 goes with we gotta go two weeks back now, right? Because again, Dash had tried to build this thing as the pyramid up, mm-hmm. but in the middle of all this. They find out, again, after Dean says, I think I was being taped, and, and Scott Armstrong sees this memo that again, has verbatim quotes from conversations delivered to the minority investigators, minority counsel from the White House. It's uh, Carmine Bellino, again, the, the, the old Bobby Kennedy buddy, who rebuilds the, the, the method of questioning for everybody and starts, he, he makes like a, he called it a spiderweb chart to try to figure out all right, th- this is who we're going to have to get to to figure out who knows what about this taping system. And, of course, it all led to Haldeman, okay? Mm-hmm. But it went through Alexander Butterfield. And oh, yeah. it's on June 13th, or July 13th, rather, with the, these new sets of questions. And Butterfield now, he's, what was he, the FAA chairman? Yeah, uh, he's he been was appointed. 
he was a World War Two pilot. Yep. And therefore he got a great job which he was enjoying. But there's a very interesting story here. Um that he had always maintained if he didn't have the loyalty to Nixon that the others did. No. He, no, he, he was, I mean, was Hall, he was Haldeman's friend, but yeah, that was and, yeah. and he was a Republican, but yeah. he was he, he quite understandably was I'm not going to jail, right, yeah. for this. Um I haven't done anything wrong and I don't intend to. So he did say, though, that if he was, you know, if somebody kind of hinted around a taping system, he wouldn't confirm it. But if he was asked a direct question, he would tell the truth. Now, Shane mentioned earlier about the investigators. They call in everybody who worked at the White House, but his meeting is considered so routine that... It's just two of them. There, it's, it's just Arms, two of them. Ar- yeah, of, Scott, Scott Armstrong and Don Sanders are the only two. None of the, them. none of the the senators turn up, which no. they will do for questioning behind closed doors. Other, but so Armstrong, as as Shane had mentioned, had seen this, and he said, "Look, I've got to ask you this." Um, yeah, here's here's this memo. Can you tell me about this? Can you tell <laughs> me? And he said, and and Butterfield says, and I sort of gulped, and I thought, "No, I'm not." I'm not putting myself in any jeopardy here. No, and he said, well, yet. I can because there's a taping system. And well, course- well, no, no, that, that, that's what comes. Well, because it, it, it's Armstrong shows in memo and he's like, you know, the, the president doesn't have that good of a memory. Let, let me think about that a little bit. Oh, yeah. And he so, forgets to go back. Yeah. To yeah. He's right. like, uh, maybe, you know, because, again, he, he hasn't been asked directly, is there a taping system in the White House? It's Don Sanders who asked directly. Is there a taping system in the White House? And Butterfield says, I was wondering if someone would ask that. There's tape in the Oval Office. And that's it, right? This is what sends Ehrlichman and Haldeman to jail. This is what fucking blows everything apart because, holy shit, Nixon's been taping all of his conversations going back to 1971, mm-hmm. which is everything. And so, um, of course, there's this mad scramble because nobody really anticipated Butterfield needing to be... Uh, you know, to provide because testimony. He's in, yeah, he's having his haircut. Care. He's yeah. having his haircut, and he says, "And I'm watching it on the TV." He said, "And the phone rings because in his job he needs to say where he is at any given point. It's quite common for yeah. uh, in the days before mobile phones. So the the phone rings, and they say, you know, you've you've to come in. They want you to testify this afternoon. He said, "I'm not coming in to testify." And he said, "And I see on television the man he knew who the guy who'd called him. He says, I see him leaning into Sam Irvin." Um, and he's obviously saying he's not coming. And I see Irvin whisper something to him. Phone rings again. And he says, Sam told me to tell you that if you don't come in, he's going to get the sergeant at arms here at US Marshals to come and arrest you. So an uncomfortable but freshly quaffed Butterfield. Yes. Yeah. Um, Comes in to, to only give one hour of testimony, which again, one for, for such a major character in all this, he's, he's in and out pretty fucking quick. Again, Dean's there for four days. Mitchell Ehrlichman and Haldeman take up like the last nine days of this goddamn thing altogether, despite Mitchell answering nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, on July 16th, on Monday, July 16th, Barfield comes in and immediately, once, you know, they, they, they get to the basics. They get to the, you, used to, you worked here from, you know, here to now and blah, blah, blah. And Fred Thompson is the one, because again, Don Sanders worked on the Republican side of the, of the council. So, if you got one of these stingers, it was your guy who got to ask the question in front of the cameras. And so Fred Thompson, here you go, asking Alexander Butterfield. 
So you were employed on January 21st, 1969, and continue to be employed until March 14 of this year. Is that correct? That's correct. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. When were those devices placed in the Oval Office? Approximately the summer of 1970. I cannot begin to recall the precise date. My guess, Mr. Thompson, is that the installation was made between, and this is a very rough guess, April or May of 1970 and perhaps the end of the summer or early fall 1970. Are you aware of any devices that were installed in the executive office building office of the president? Yes, sir, at that time. Now, what I love about this, Shane, is the gulp. Yeah. Right? Because he knows what he's just about to do. And he yeah. can try to keep his head down. And he, the gulp, and then you, he's, yes, I... I was aware of recording devices in the White House. Yes, sir. And well, it's almost, you can hear he's, it on, he's almost going to get a butt clip. in there, yeah, too. Yeah. You know, like, like he's trying one, to yeah. find a way out of this. But there, there isn't one. Um, and you hear in that, that the, the footage is, is on YouTube if you want to watch it as well. The room just, it's like a... Everybody's, a, yeah. Yeah, a bomb goes off. It's just like, wow. And suddenly, you know, everybody's flying around town. The, the reporters rush out to phone their newspapers with this story. And... It's it's just chaotic because of course now they, there is a way to find out is Dean telling the truth is is uh, the president telling the truth. Interestingly about Butterfield, you mentioned there's something that I think is very 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 interesting. He's just in and out of this, right? Yeah. He's not all over the story, but he's so high up in the White House. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, there Holdeman's assistant, yeah. and I, you know he knew about the tapes and whatnot. Rosemary Woods, President Nixon's secretary, who we'll come to next week, um, long-standing secretary, a member of the family. His kids called her aunt. Yeah. She was, yeah. if, if anyone's seen the, the West Wing, she was Mrs. Lanningham, right? She That's who Mrs. Lanningham's based of, uh, Rosemary Woods. She was loyal to the nth, right? Would have taken a bullet for Nixon, all of that. And uh, she says to Alderman one day, I think he's CIA. And he's like, what? And she's like, yeah, I, I think he's CIA. I think, you know, they've put him in here. He's their guy in here. And Haldeman in his book in 78, again, after he's been to prison, he says, I think she might be right. And there is a lot of suspicion about that. I, I mean, suspicion's not the right. I don't mean people are. He, he, he wouldn't have done anything <laughs> wrong if he worked for the CIA. Yeah. But um, there is that, that feeling. And in terms of if the CIA did want to drop a bomb on Richard Nixon, they succeeded. So that'll be one for conspiracy theorists. But what, what well, becomes... Well, but Butterfield, too, famous, you know, after he left the White House, he he took a shit ton of papers with him that mm. Woodward used in his, uh, what was it, The Last last of the President's Men, the book yes. from, uh, I don't know, About five, five, ten years ago now. Yeah. It, well, including the, what, the, the, the Kissinger, the Zilch memo, um, which was pretty much the, the basis for the entire book i think can be early yeah. you know the nexus of it so yeah i mean there, there, there's certainly certainly uh i don't know hints of um maybe being more than than what he presented himself to be and and, and i think i mean it's 
Well, I, you know, just going back to, to the taping system, it was uh, was it uh, Higby, right? Lawrence, Lawrence Higby. Lawrence Higby, yeah. Was, yeah, because Nixon tells Haldeman, uh, look, I, 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 need, I want a taping system in the White House, right? And this is back in early 71. So Haldeman, he gets Higby and, and Butterfield, and they go in there, and what was it? They, they put – so there's five microphones in Nixon's Oval Office desk, okay? Two in lamps. They're up above um, – they're, like, above the fireplace uh, on the um, the mantle. They put another couple in the cabinet room, and then they do all the telephone lines in the Lincoln sitting room and Oval Office. And then they put some over – uh, a, a couple months later, that they, they put the same kind of system over in Nixon's um, uh, office in the executive office building. But, you know, you can see now with the setup of this stuff, that this is what Dean was talking about in his testimony, especially these ones that, that are up over the fireplace, because Nixon would keep walking over in that direction as he was talking to him and kind of, well, let me tilt my head up this way, or maybe <laughs> look right here. And it's like... What the fuck are you looking at on the fireplace, man? It, it reminds me of Homer Simpson's gigantic hat in which he has a concealed <laughs> camera. You know, and, and, and they think it's concealed, but instead he's, uh, uh, it, it's so obvious to everyone. And, but, but, but it's just, okay, so it's Haldeman, Higby, Butterfield, and then there's just a couple Secret Service technicians yeah, who, who take care of the shit. Because it all goes back to the basement of the White House. And they're the ones in charge of managing this. I mean, it's a rather cheap system in all honesty, for given the importance of it. As you can probably tell by listening to any sections of the actual tapes that we've played so far, it's not good quality. No, it's not. And and really it's taken I mean the 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 project to transcribe all the which is now completed, um has taken years because yeah. people had to sit and you couldn't just listen to it and write it down. You had to, you know, it's been enhanced dramatically as much well, and as uh, they still can. Only- yeah, and they've still only released about three hundred hours yeah, of audio bit, because because yeah. of that because it's it's so like you can't listen to it and just ask no. you, if a normal a normal person listening to the tapes is going to hear whatever the fuck they want to hear. Yeah, and, and that that's one of the problems that yep. that we have with it. But yeah, so immediately Sam Dash that night drives over. He wants to surprise Dean with this, um, and when he'd heard about the t- he says to to John Dean. Nixon taped himself, and he wanted to see if Dean panicked, because obviously, if he'd been lying, yeah, then here's proof. And Dean smiles and says, "Great, well, yeah. you've got him." Uh, and Dash says, "All right, you know, he was telling the truth. I really believe he was telling the truth." Um, so immediately, first of all, Nixon uh, has got some explaining to do because his wife and his kids didn't know they were being recorded whenever <laughs> they phoned them. And uh, uh, his underlings didn't know. And immediately there's a debate about, well, what should we do with these with these tapes? And Nixon doesn't yet, incidentally, order the taping system dismantled. It has no. been changed to now that it's, instead of, it was voice activated before, which meant it would come on automatically. Now there's a button, which is what yeah. LBJ had. But um, it's still there. And it will go on for a while yet. But immediately they need to decide what they're going to do with it and he gets contrasting advice um one of his lawyers fred bizarre says you should burn this yeah. right just just get rid of them just destroy them and say i'm defending executive privilege len garment uh, his other lawyer says i don't know now that existence has been disclosed if you did that that could be seen as destroying evidence later well i think on. some people kind of give him the, the you know the act of god oh man it's just 
shit, yeah. these things stop playing all of a sudden. Yeah. Oh, oh could, who could uh, Pat Buchanan, <laughs> possibly done this? <laughs> Pat Buchanan says, go outside, invite every journalist in Washington to come, and then have a great big bonfire. He said, there will be a literal firestorm, and then you'll survive it. And, and Buchanan still believes that. I would point to the Saturday Night Massacre, which we'll come to, that <laughs> no, he week, wouldn't yes. have survived it. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't think he would have dis- uh, He would have survived that. But Garman is correct. It, it would be destroying evidence. And while the president was still convinced at this point that he could not be indicted for a criminal act, remember that, folks, it's very important. Yeah. And it isn't. It's a grey area, by the way, in the American Constitution. Um, at this point, the Justice Department quietly sent one of their legal scholars to look over US court rules. And we're going to come to Spiro Agnew, um to see whether you can charge a president and a vice president with an ordinary crime. And he yeah. comes back and he says, a vice president, you can. A president, you probably can, but you shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's which, which is how we end up with the clusterfuck that was Donald Trump's impeachment. Yeah, you probably <laughs> should. But what Garment says, which is true, is he said, even if it's not a criminal act, it will form the basis of uh, an article of impeachment, and yeah. you won't you won't be able to argue against that because it w- they will class it as a high crime and misdemeanor, which yeah. it, which it is, um, which it, high crime. Crime and misdemeanor is a phrase in the the Constitution for yeah. It's it, it's one of them uh, the weird because you know there, there wasn't a legal code, so yeah. th- this is part of the problem that everybody has to go through after we get past the tapes and everything else is what is a high crime and misdemeanor because it didn't exist in 1791. No, and, and um, one of Nixon's great phrases is uh, he says, "Well, the Constitution is very clear." on what the president can be impeached for. And of course, it's not very clear. It's deliberately not yeah. very clear. That's yes. why yeah, it's one of the most brilliantly written documents in the history of the world. And yeah. one of the reasons was they realized that, hang on, in 200 years, things might have changed a bit. Hello, so we need to bit. give some, yeah, so we need to give some elasticity to these, these rules and some room for interpretation. So and Nixon is using that again. It's a it's a great Nixonian line where it appears as though he's answering the question. Yeah, but he's really he's not. No, he's really just pissing in your face. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he appears to be handing you a cake, but as Shane says at that moment, you're like, "Why is my face wet?" <laughs> so July 16th, like I said, we get Butterfield out here. July uh, immediately, immediately, Sam Irvin, of course. Asked the White House. It was either that night or the next day. He asked the White House to turn over these tapes, right? Saying an emotion, well, all, all the shit that's about to come down the pipe and everything we're going to get to next week. But there's a there's an interesting little last uh, little last trick here. Uh, that on uh, it was a July 19th, all right? So it's been three days, and Irvin gets a a memo. He's you know he's up there at the front of the committee room that. There's a call coming from the White House about the tapes. He needs to go take it immediately. So he goes over in this little, there's little telephone booths that the reporters use within the committee room to like call in, you know, their, their news stories. I mean, this is back when you, you call on the, you call on the desk and you, you know, you give them the first line, stop, but then you give them the second line, stop. And you know, this is how you, you got copy back to the desk uh, in the era before phones. So he goes over to one of these booths, he takes the call and it's Nixon's treasury secretary saying, oh, my God, you know, I've, I've talked to the president and uh, he's going to give you the tapes. Like, oh, 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 that's that's excellent news. So Irvin gets back in front of the cameras and by golly, 
the president has agreed, you know, the law matters and then we're going to, he's going to give us the tapes, you know, these eight or nine tapes that we're specifically asking for. And man, isn't this just a guy, the president is just a wonderful swell guy. And it doesn't take too long that, uh, well, Sam Irvin gets another phone call actually from the White House this time because the first one was not saying, no, that, that, that that's not who that was. And we haven't made a decision on this shit. And the, why the fuck do you think we would just call you at the damn committee room to say this instead of doing this via any kind of official legal channel? Which just breaks Irvin's heart. You can, you can go find this TV interview with him. You know, he's, I can't believe that people would... Uh, tear down this this great uh, you know bashing of government to, uh, just for the sake of a simple hoax um and so on the the 22nd the 22nd he gets a to reply yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i will say something else about Irvin too and all this he thought watergate was again going back to the segregation thing he thought watergate was worse than the civil war he says i've got this quote here i just want to share it yeah. with you because you know um it is hard not to warm to him throughout this, right? It, it yep. really is. And he does play a very honourable role within this. Oh, yeah. um, but he says at one point, he said, I think Watergate is the greatest tragedy to befall our nation. I used to think it was the Civil War, but I remember in the Civil War that there were at least some acts of uh, valour and heroism and uh, sacrifice. 600,000 people died. It's it's the equivalent of, I think, something like 10% of the nation. Now, Watergate is bad, but for fuck's sake, Sam. <laughs> Uh, I, I wonder why he thinks. I wonder why he thinks of that. I, I wonder why. Anyway. I, wonder, uh, I wonder why he quite likes the civil. Yeah, I wonder yeah. why he quite. Yeah, and and you know, you you do have to remember. Now, by the way, folks, we we should. There were Sam Irvin fan clubs were being set up. Oh yeah, the people joining sure. it were like. Oh god, uh, he, he ends up releasing liberals. a record, a spoken a record, record yes, where, he where, he see, where where he does a. Oh god, should I go? I don't want to get this. He does. He does bridge over troubled water. Yep. but it's just. It's like music version. Yeah. yeah, it's a music version. It's him just speaking the lyrics over it, and it's he. Oh. He is he influenced. I you, you know I thought it was William Shatner who had invented this. It's not. No. It's Senator Sam, and of course, what's <laughs> what's he known as? Uncle Sam. Yeah. And they're selling these Uncle Sam, but they were also selling. And I I am if anyone has one of these or knows someone who's got one of these, ideally two, send me one for me and one for Shane. They were selling little bugs. You know, little like plastic <laughs> bugs or spiders with Watergate bug written yep. on it, which I just think is you know the best thing ever. And well, I, uh, well, what, what was it? there was one company too that was selling what they call it, like a long distance lie detector that they were selling <laughs> the people. So like you could place it in front of your TV or radio while while you were listening or watching the testimony of these people, and it would tell you if they were lying or not. Like uh, it just. The, the little commodity market that came out of the Watergate hearings <laughs> is unfucking believable We go right back to the thing we said at the start. At the start, the TV companies feel they should show it, right? But they yep. don't want to lose. So they, they agree we'll take it a day each. The three, at the time, there's three major networks. We'll take it a day each, right? Um, and they all end up showing all of it every day. And they, as we say, they cancel these, these soap operas that are hugely popular. Um, and the viewing figures are through the bloody roof. You know, that they're making, they're selling advertising, they're making a fortune off it. This thing became this pop culture explosion. Yeah. Yep. And so, 
Let's let's wrap this before we come back next week. Like I said, the White House calls Irvin and says, "No, you got to give us a couple more days." And yeah. on July twenty second, he gets the written written letter from Nixon and the, and the White House uh, counsel saying, "You know, Sam, we've been thinking about this, but uh, th- those are presidential papers. They're, they're they're protected under executive privilege, and you are not getting anywhere near these fucking tapes." Yeah. And so the next day. With the man that we mentioned earlier, Archibald Cox, along with Sam Irvin, the same day, both issue subpoenas serve, you know, they both serve them subpoena, but serve subpoenas on Nixon in the White House to turn over the tapes, setting in motion, I mean, this unbelievable fucking court battle that, that wages over the coming weeks and months to try to, uh, well, Nixon trying to cover his ass because he knows now I'm fucked. I mean, th- <laughs> yeah. this is it. The... The, the interesting thing at this stage is, does Nixon believe that? And Len Garment, who was his lawyer through this, has been asked about this. And he tells a story, he says, I'll compare it to this. Um, there's an old Russian story about a man who, you know, there's a famine on and he's no, no work, no money to feed his family. And he gets money from the Tsar because he persuades him that in one month, the he'll get a dog to talk, right? He'll take one of the Tsar's dogs away and get him to talk. Uh, And his wife says to him, oh my God, you know, why did you do this? In a a month, the Tsar will kill you. And he said, well, the Tsar's a very busy man, so he might forget. He said, or maybe the dog might die. And then he kind of says for a minute, he goes, and maybe the dog will talk. And Garment said, that's what Nixon did. He just gambled. (laughs) It was the simple commodity of hope. He yep. just gambled that the dog would talk yeah. and that something well, the, 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 would come the, along and save him. Yeah, the problem in this case, though, is that it ends up back in the same courtroom of uh, John Sirica, who's Big, big yeah. Bad John. <laughs> yeah, he's a uh, didn't believe this shit from the first place and definitely <laughs> doesn't give a fuck now. So, no. um, but that, yeah, just to wrap I mean, the, the Senate Watergate Committee, just to finish this, too, uh, they finally issue a report, their final report, right? They, they issue a couple interim reports. And obviously, with the ongoing battle over the tapes, which, again, this is what we're going to spend all the time next week talking about. Um, but they don't finish their fi- final report until uh, uh, July 13th of 74. So just a couple couple weeks before Nixon uh, resigns. And it is a massive, exhaustive accounting of, of all their investigations. Um, they, you know, they've loosened tons of documents from the Nixon White House now at this point. Of course, the tapes are out there in public, so you have all that. They give uh, like 35 35 or 40-something recommendations for legislative change, um, including one of the big ones here is to, uh, uh, in in terms of how lawyers self-police, because at this time, the the practice of law was a rather insular and and protected, uh, you know, profession. But you have all these lawyers breaking the law on fucking TV in front of the entire country day after day. And so what, one of the recommendations from the committee, and a very good one, was you know, maybe we should think about how we um, you know, allow lawyers to, to go about practicing their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that's, um, that's it. Yep. That's the uh, Senate Watergate Committee and uh, Sam Irvin, a simple country lawyer. A vital part of the story, uh, I think, as I mentioned at the start, I think this kind of sets still in people's minds what these committees are and what they should be. And in a way, 
they're right because it it functioned the way it was supposed to, where yep. they sat down at the start. Um, and yeah, they had their own affiliations and their own ideals, but none of them worked backwards. None of them said, if a fact comes up in this that I don't like, I will ignore it. And that's important because yeah. I don't know if that would happen now. I think people go in with a predetermined outcome. And we see it in the UK at the moment where we've seen you know, people go out there trying to defend uh, the Prime Minister and... Yeah make fools of themselves really because uh, they're, they're prepared to do that these guys weren't they they expected to find something different but when the path led them a certain way they went that way and i think that's important and i think that's laudable yeah well and i think you know it, it, as you're saying i mean it, it really showed people the government works and nixon tries to you know off the back of it and this is in the middle of the the first round of courts he finally makes a speech about all this shit sometime in August. And it's his normal Nixon, you know, well, again, he's a lawyer, right? He's not going to say anything, but effectively at the end, he's like, look, come on. They, they've been talking about this shit for 300 hours now. You know, I mean, how, 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 how long can this go on before, you know, something bad happens to the country because we're all paying attention to this. And of course, everybody now at this point is kind of go, all right, man, like that, Stop trying to fucking distract us. <laughs> we, we're on to what you're here. doing. Yeah, and it, it, it's really off the back of, of Irvin's committee and these televised hearings that people who, you know, common people, or there were people in the Senate, there were people in the House, there were people in government who were going to have to make this decision on what would happen to the presidency of Dick Nixon who were, who were swayed emotionally and politically by it that going into it thought there's no way in fuck they're going to say anything in this. It's going to make me think anything different, you know? Mm -hmm. And there were still people, you know, like Ronald Reagan, uh, George HW Bush, uh, the the first Bush president who were still out there in October and November of 73. Oh, come on, just let the man do his job. You know, but Bush famously let's let the man do the job he was elected for, you know, you weren't going to change them, but those were, Republican Party people, you know, I mean, these were people whose entire career was hung up in the legitimacy of the party, not the legitimacy of Dick Nixon. And so you have this this sway and you can see it in public opinion polls coming off the back. You know, before Irvin's committee, Nixon still had overwhelming support across the public. By the end, his approval rating had already dipped below 40%, and it was not done. I mean, it was it never still, yeah. no, hell no. No, it was going to keep bottoming out. Yeah, and and like I say, I just think that that's kind of all we can ask for from any system, Western liberal yeah. justice, where I, I accept people will have their inbuilt biases. We're humans, but when facts... It's the age-old argument, isn't it? You can have your own opinions, you can't have your own facts. And when facts were presented to these guys, and it'll happen again, we're going to come later to the Rodino um, uh, impeachment hearings, and there are people who make the journey when they're presented with evidence. Some some hold on as long as they can, and I understand that for emotional reasons, Um, but... Yeah, when but when, when the tapes finally come out... Yeah, when people yeah. are presented with the evidence, they don't try and sit there and tell the American people that black is white. And I do think in 2022 there are a number of politicians on both sides of the Atlantic that are quite 100%. keen to tell people that black is white. 100%. Next week, the tapes, 
And Archibald Cox and his, and his little bow tie. Bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> I love that both of us at the same time. <laughs> and probably, you know, maybe the most famous massacre in political history. Yeah. Political history. Let's let's clarify that one. So, uh, if you like everything we're doing, you can scroll down the show notes again. Check out the Buy Me a Coffee link. That's for the Crow Pod, of course. All David's stuff over on Heart and Hand. You just go over to them and uh, sign up for their Patreon. Help them out. Uh, David, of course, you can find on Twitter at IbroxRocks. Thank you again, David. Oh, thank you, Shane. I really enjoyed that this week. Been wonderful. Been wonderful. And, of course, me, you can find on Twitter at Avoid. We'll be back next week. Like I said, next week we are we are finally taping. And we are, oh, God, Archibald Cox. Archibald Cox. It's so fucking wonderful. So we'll see y'all then. Bye. Dickie's just too tricky For a chump like me to use Oh, you You take that stuff, you made it serious, boy And I'm serious You just might get a seizure From the evening news